Well, good morning, church. I see a lot of new people. I don't know a lot of y'all. Well, some are done. Brought y'all out. Okay. Well, if you weren't here last week, my name is Justin. Uh, I am the, I'm on staff here at Crosspoint. I, I serve as the church planting resident. And, and basically what that means is that my wife, our three boys, we... Uh, long for and desire to see the city of Orlando informed and transformed by the power of the gospel and to the glory of God. And, and we believe uh, wholeheartedly that church planting is uh, one of the best ways to see this uh, vision become, this hope become a reality. And, and so that's what we've given our lives to. That's why we are here of, of, of our home church of eight years to do this work. And so we have an invitation for you. Uh, and in the next two weeks, we're starting a community group in our home, uh, just south of the Hunters Creek area. And so if you are interested or uh, maybe curious about what that means or, or even what church planting is, anything that, that we could, my wife and I, uh, sort of uh, answer for you, we'll, we'll be hanging around the connections table for the next several weeks. And uh, you could you know, come say hi and, and uh, question us all about that. And so enough about that. What, you want ready to study your Bibles this morning? I am tongue-tied this morning. You ready to study your Bibles this morning? Yeah. All right, cool. Great. Me too. This morning we'll be in 3 John. And so as you get there, I sort of want to frame up our time. We come finally uh, to the conclusion of our series journeying through John's epistles. Epistles that, though never contain the word gospel in them, are no less deeply saturated in the explanation and mostly application of the gospel. These three letters display to us a pastor deeply caring for his sheep as they endure difficult seasons. And each letter, John stresses the importance of love towards each other, obedience towards God, and doctrinal faithfulness. But he also emphasizes that these three components are not siloed away into different parts of our lives or siloed away amongst the body. They're not to be confused with things like the gifts of the Spirit or hospitality and teaching. You, you cannot say, well, this person has one and I have the other or, or say that maybe one matters more to God than the other one is more relevant to God than the other. In fact, what John repeatedly declares to us is that the mature believer, the believer whose life is marked by intimacy with God, contains all three, all three aspects, love for neighbor, obedience to God, doctrinal faithfulness, all work together to grow the believer into all that God has called them to be. And John makes this powerful proclamation in the beginning of his first letter. In 1 John 1, 3, he says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, we also proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He means to tell us here that the Jesus he saw 
the Jesus he heard, he now proclaims to us. And he's proclaiming a Jesus who sticks closer than a brother. A Jesus who's a revolutionary's revolutionary. A, a Jesus whose existence is eternally, historically, and experientially constant. And this is our Jesus too. John wants to declare this truth to us. So that we could experience him and our lives be changed by the truth of who he is to the degree all the way through so that our joy may be complete. He echoes his brother Paul who says famously, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The saying is true, family, when you meet Jesus. You can no longer be the same. And what John will continue to argue all throughout his letters is that in order for this, this moment, post-salvation, this, this perfection, this, this progress to be made in you, you need to be among the people who are doing the same work and having the same work done in them. John says the gospel applies. Is as much horizontal as it is vertical. You got to be living together with the children of the elect lady, the church, in love and in light. Last week we studied the entirety of John's second epistle, where he clears the air doctrinally. Jesus is indeed fully God and fully man. And he warns us of deceivers who would be among us, slowly confounding our kingdom perspective. John gives two orders for us to carry out, practice the truth and protect the truth. And we know from our study last week that we practice the truth by protecting the truth while being protected by the one who is the truth. Amen? Some of y'all weren't here last week. That's okay. That, mm, that's Carol, right? Yeah, I know. But the letter that's before us this morning, I love you. The letter that's before us this morning differs from 2 John's letter in so many ways. This letter, John's third epistle, is, is something like a postcard. It's brief. It doesn't say too much. It's just 15 verses, short verses. It's, very, it's a very specific letter addressed to a specific person concerning specific people that is now meant for the church in general to read and learn from. And here's what we know walking into this letter. We know that the external operation of the Christian is a reflection of the internal state of their heart. We also know that John cares very deeply about this truth. We know that this matters a great deal to him. And so John writes this letter making an assessment of three individuals' character, three personality tests, maybe. And in each one, we find some instruction. So I want to title our time together this morning, Character Counts. Character Counts, as we look at three persons to which John addresses, and we see in their assessments a commendation a condemnation, and a recommendation. A commendation, a condemnation, 
and a recommendation. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Hopefully I don't choke this week when I read. Third John, we're going to read the entire letter. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, stranger as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whatever does good, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is, has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, at this moment, and in every moment, we need you. We are needy, needy creatures. No matter our supposed independence, we are a people dependent on you. Father, this morning you have chosen this text for these people, including myself. May you gift us with ears to hear, hearts to receive, and hands that do your will. Father, may your word penetrate our hearts. May we, by your spirit's power, be self-reflective, looking deeply and honestly at our state. May you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you gift the congregation this morning with attentiveness and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On June 27th, 1940, Elliot Crochet Williams was serving as assistant private secretary to Winston Churchill when he wrote Mr. Churchill a letter concerning, sorry, his views on the United Kingdom's involvement in World War II. His letter read, I'm all for winning this war if it can be. 
But it does not seem to me and I know to others that if and when an informed view of the situation shows that we've really not got a practical chance of actual ultimate victory, no question of prestige should stand in the way of our using our nuisance value while we have won to get the best peace terms possible. He goes on to write, after losing many lives and much money, we shall merely find ourselves in the position of France or worse. I hope this doesn't sound defeatist. I'm not that, only realist. What Mr. Crochet Williams is suggesting here is peace with Nazi Germany, peace with Adolf Hitler. And Churchill responded the very next day with a handwritten letter that was very brief. I want to read the whole thing to you. He says, I am ashamed of you for writing such a letter. I return it to you to burn and to forget. That's a heck of a reply to get from your boss. <laughs> Here's this garbage letter you wrote me. I'm going to give it back to you. I want you to burn it and let's never talk about this again. <laughs> what does this have to do with 3 John? Well, John's letter, like Mr. Churchill's letter, is an assessment of someone's character. Although Churchill is addressing a character of one person, John's letter assesses the character of three. A man named Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And though there is much for us to glean from John's letter, it's important that we study it in light of the first two. Particularly 2 John, which we studied last week. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to listen to the podcast or watch the video on YouTube. John says, if, if, if I could, in a sentence... He warns us of our gospel integrity within us and around us. We are called to live in light of the gospel and its implications while guarding against those who take away from the message of believers' testimony. Where 2 John was written to a church, 3 John is written to a person. Where 2 John focuses on the reputation or the character of the church, 3 John points to specific characters for us to learn from. Therefore, 3 John is sort of a natural follow-up for us to read in light of 2 John. Although it's very different, it's the right step to take. Now let's dig in. Immediately, we are introduced to our first person, starting in verse 1. The elder, that's John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you. And that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. That's, you highlight that. If you're a highlighter, that's what you highlight. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John introduces Gaius to us as someone whom he loves in the truth. No doubt about that. So much so that he refers to him as beloved. And he says, he prays that his physical health goes as well as his soul. Church, we got to learn from this. He says, I hope your body is experiencing the same health 
as your soul is in Jesus. He's saying, I hope you're experiencing the same freedom, the same uh, prosperity, the same fullness that your soul is. Family, this is more than well wishes. This is more than sentimentalism. This is more than a superficial, hey, I hope you're doing good. No, John prays honestly for the earthly needs of his little brother in the faith and the instruction here for us is so should we. This is good gospel application. I don't just want to see you come to the faith. I want that more than anything. But I don't just want to see that be a reality for you. I want all your earthly needs to be met as well. Family, in our pursuit to guard our theology, to protect all that the gospel actually is, may we not forget the call, the need to pray for and seek out each other's health in every way, physical health, emotional health, financial health, mental health. I could spend my whole time on this verse, but I will say this and then we'll move on. Our external prosperity, our external health is important. It is. There's no doubt about it. You can't argue that. It is important, but it is no priority over our spiritual health. Our souls, our spiritual health must be the priority. If not, that's when sin creeps in. We get caught up in our finances, then that becomes greed. We get caught up in our physical well-being, then that becomes self-righteousness. We get so caught up in our mental health that it becomes manipulation. Church, if we don't nurture our souls first, nothing else will ever be as prosperous to to the degree that God desires it to be. After John's prayer, he writes a commendation for Gaius. And he does it for three reasons. And as God would have it, that this private commendation of Gaius' character is now made public for us to learn from. First, he says, I heard your testimony from others. You are the real deal. You are walking in the truth. That's the first reason, walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear God's children walking in the truth. In the truth, John makes clear to us as eavesdroppers of this letter to Gaius that objective truth and walking in the truth come together. That the head, the heart, and the hands make the believer a faithful follower of Jesus. And he's saying, I hear your testimony from others. There are other people who have witnessed the wholeness of your character and have reported it back to me. I am Filled with joy. The Greek construction here supposes that Gaius either came to faith or grew up in the faith, matured under John's instruction. He's John's spiritual son. John's ministry has produced this fruit. Gaius is an extension of the faithful labor of John and Gaius's life, living on mission, faithfully laboring to the glory of God, brings John a joy that is supreme. Family, this is the heart of a pastor. If I could speak for them, sorry. But this is the heart of your pastor, should be the heart of your pastor's. 
Steve, A.D., Nathan, Chris, it is their supreme joy to see their faithful labor in ministry produce in us, the children of the church, a faithfulness that testifies to those outside of us the goodness, grace, and glory of God. Steve, the only person who said amen. (laughs) Everybody else is here like, I don't know how I feel about being a child. I love Spurgeon's commentary here. It's a long quote, but it'll be up there for you to read along with me. Spurgeon says, minister ought to be at rest unless he sees that his ministry brings forth fruit. And men and women are born unto God by, by the preaching of the word. It is to this end we are sent to you, not to help you spend your Sundays respectably or to quiet your conscience by conducting worship on your behalf. No, ministers are sent into the world for a higher purpose. And if your souls are not saved, then we have labored in vain. If in the hands of God we are not made the means of your new birth, Our sermons and instructions have been a mere waste of effort and a waste of time to you, if not worse. To see children born unto God, this is the grand thing. Therefore, every preacher longs to be able to talk about his spiritual sons and daughters. That's good, isn't it? That's good, right? Family, there can also exist another challenge in this text for us. I want to talk to parents real quick. Parents, this should be for us as well. Because how can we be satisfied merely with the cleverness of our children's learning, the savviness of their business, but not a renewed, transformed heart? How can we be merely satisfied To have them prepared for the battles of this world, but not for the battle of their soul. How can we be satisfied with the praise of their high grades, but not the crown of heaven that they'll receive at the end of day? Their lively personalities with dead spirits, their wealth, their status, their ability and not the fruits of the Spirit or the armor of God. Parents, may we never rest unless we see that our ministry at home brings forth fruit and produces young men and young women born unto God. May we not be joyful that they build their treasures where the rust can take it. May we become unrelenting prayer warriors who never stop praying that our children's souls are saved and never stop guiding their hearts towards their king. And if you're sitting here with no children of your own, then I ask you to look around when they return from Sunday school and see all the little hearts available for spiritual adoption. Your time, your energy is a gift to a frazzled or feigning parent. Just as God has adopted you and moved you from stranger to son, you have been adopted into a family much larger than your own. Look around you. I'll lay a challenge before you. Pick a parent. 
and call them this week and pray with them for their children's salvation. Pray with them for their steadfast faithfulness. I know the day that one of my three boys professes publicly that they hold their whole and complete trust in King Jesus. There's at least three young men in this room who can be glad of their faithful labor as they've encountered spiritual sons in the faith. We need more of this in this place. We need more adopted spiritual sons and daughters in this place. I'm halfway through my time and I ain't even through my first point yet. Look with me to verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a worthy manner of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. The next two reasons why John writes his commendation for Gaius, he puts together. He commends his faithful service, that's two, and his generous hospitality, that's three. His faithful service and his generous hospitality toward other laborers and shepherds in the faith. Although they were strangers to him, not a part of his church, not from the area, he didn't know who they were, but he received them with gladness and kindness, serving them and meeting their needs as they went out and testified the gospel. And then what they did was also testify to Gaius's faithfulness towards them. Gaius acted towards these teachers of the word consistently with what he believed. In other words, what Gaius knew to be true informed how he was to behave. Let me put this in more context for you. In the first century, strangers were considered dangerous. You know, stranger danger. It was a real thing in the first century. People didn't travel as much or sightsee as we do. Their cities and their lands weren't overcrowded like ours. They couldn't just get up and take some mode of transportation to an entirely new town or city. That, that wasn't how it go. Your day-to-day for the common person was almost always seeing the same people doing the same things at the same day of the week every day. You see what I'm saying? You knew everyone in your town and village, okay? We don't have that same sort of like awareness of strangers because most of us in our job see hundreds, if not thousands of strangers every day. You know how I know that as a society, we're not really too concerned for strangers. You go to a theme park. (laughs) You go to a theme park where on a good day, you've encountered hundreds of thousands. And if you're park hopping, millions of people, you trust them to make your food. You trust them to tell you where to go. You've trusted them to create a piece of metal that you will strap yourself to with other strangers to go 80 miles an hour in 80 different directions 
in a span of 30 seconds, and then when you get off, you'll trust a whole new set of strangers to get on that same ride with you. I missed this point. I want to say it. I should move on, but I want to say it because it's, it's kind of funny. And then you'll ask them, <laughs> and then you'll ask them to hold your phone to take a picture of you while you post that on social media for more strangers to like, comment, and share behind your back. We, the fir- to the first century person, okay, so remove yourself from this. You're not that scared of strangers. To the first century person, strangers were suspicious. Strangers were dangerous. They could not enter a town or city unless someone who was vetted, someone who the town or city admired, vouched for them. And yet every commentator agrees that what Gaius has done is give them food, entertainment, money, a place to stay, encouragement, and prayer. And in this, John says, Gaius has honored God, Gaius has honored the gospel, and Gaius has honored John as his spiritual father. The instruction to us is clear. Faithfully serve and generously minister to the ministers of the gospel. These strangers were Christian brothers and sisters who deserved to be treated in a Christian manner, and that's exactly what Gaius did. And there's something else for us to learn here. John gives us three reasons why we should help those whom God has called and sent out. I'll try to be quick about this. First, they set out for the sake of the name. This is the only time Jesus is mentioned in this letter, and it's because it's his name that ministers take to the nations, not their own. It is his gospel that we proclaim, not our own. Be weary of anyone, any minister or missionary, local or abroad, who carries within themselves a desire to preach their name to fame. Second, they accepted nothing from pagans or unbelievers. This is an important one. These ministers did not attempt to finance God's work with the world's money. These ministers did not attempt to finance God's work with the world's money. They depended on the generosity and gifts of the church, their fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Most of you in this room are familiar with support-raised positions. I want to be very clear. My wife and I are a support-raised family, so we got a little bit of skin in the game. That's why I'm a little passionate about this. But I'm going to confess to you, I know, you know what I'm saying? We got a good relationship. But most of you are familiar with this. And this point is as much for us to receive as it is for the church to hear. We, support-raised ministers, should strongly consider who and why we ask support from, as well as the church should strongly consider who and why their generosity goes to and what for. I'll tell you something, I'll take a little risk. I find it odd, odd, not sinful, but odd, when a Christian will say, well, we support small businesses. And don't get me wrong, you, that you should. That is a good concept. You should. Many small business owners here today, we should be supporting them. 
and yet you do not support a missionary or a minister of the gospel. I find that, I find that a little weird. That's just me. Not sin, not calling it sin. But I, I'll die on this hill. Ministers and missionaries should be supported by their brothers and sisters in the faith. They should be. Because it is the calling of God for the minister and it is the calling of God to the giver. Third, ties into the second. John says we ought to support such men so that they could be, so that we can be co-workers of the truth. You may not physically go where they go, but you can go with them anywhere when they go by your support. Everyone is called to pray. Everyone is called to give. Only some are sent out. Only some are called to be graciously burdened in this particular way. Only some will be judged more harshly than the rest. And yet everyone is essential as we work together for the work of God. We should, as Daniel Aiken prays, we should pray as Daniel Aiken prays. God, multiply the sin and multiply the supporters. Gaius indeed possesses a character worthy for us to imitate. But not everyone in the church had such a character. John writes a condemning word about Diotrephes, which was the reason he wrote the letter in the first place. Look at verse 9. He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John does not dumb down his words here. It's very strong language. He's taken serious issue with Diotrephes' actions and words. Diotrephes had a, had a harmful and destructive agenda. He wanted to be the head, the boss in the church. He was selfish, only loving himself and not others. And he led with perverted ambition and a dominating spirit. He was the opposite to John and Gaius, creating the very thing God hates, discord among the body of believers, undeserved, unnecessary disunity. And John cannot let that go unaddressed. Because of Diotrephes, people are rejecting the truth. They are turning away from the teachings of John. Because of Diotrephes, there is an unwelcoming spirit among the body, not accepting others who wish to join the household of faith. This is the work of Satan. Satan is the great divider. He seeks always to create disunity among the people of God. The Bible is full, both in the Old and New Testament, of directives and encouragement to maintain unity, togetherness, bonds between us. We are supposed to be tight-knit always striving together for singularity of purpose. That's what unity is. It is the many operating as one for the goal. If I could put it to you like this, the NBA playoffs are currently on. No? Okay, that's fine. 
and we're very close to the finals. What the finals are is when two teams make it to the end. It's the final. And they play in a best of seven series. So first to four. You following? I hope you guys. I hope so. Each team, each team may have its leader or leaders. But to rely on them to do everything will only get you so far. Particularly if there's a toxic leader. You can look at the Philadelphia 76ers. No basketball fans. I'm, I'm preaching to the wrong people. But reaching the end, receiving recognition for all your faithful labor, all season and all off season, goes only to the team that was united all year long. They weren't perfect. They had conflict. They had injury. They had distractions. But what counts is seeing the end together. That's usually the team who wins it all. See, when you have a guy like Diotrephes leading the charge, you don't make it to the end. And John says, hold up, y'all. Before we keep going, we need to address this. This cannot be ignored. This man is causing strife and conflict. This man is not loving the body. John has written a letter to the church and it hasn't been received. So John is writing to someone who he can count on. John is writing to someone whose reputation is worthy enough and trusted enough to speak out. He is a trusted name in the household church. We need to be able to address among ourselves. Those who would take away from the body, those who operate only in self-interest and self-protection, those who gatekeep the truth and uh, the truth of God in exchange for their own narrative, who prop themselves up and their convictions instead of what's good for the church. John says, when such a person is in power, when such a person is in charge, only a person with good reputation and with good character can be trusted to speak out on behalf of righteousness. And John is saying, Gaius, you're my guy. Gaius, you're my guy. And then John gives us four reasons why diatrophy should be condemned. One, prideful ambition. Diotrephes puts himself first. He's number one, the captain of the ship, the boss, the CEO, the head of the table, and the main attraction. Diotrephes assumes a place only meant for Jesus. As Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is to have first place in everything. I mean, this is a warning of pride, be it for the leader or layman, guest or gospel partner. Do not be driven by prideful ambition. Gaius's only ambition was to see the gospel go forth, Diotrephes to be head of the church. Second, domineering arrogance. Diotrephes wouldn't receive John or his missionaries. Diotrephes wanted to exercise authority in the church, and his ego couldn't allow room for other teachers or other preachers or other influencers. And because of this, the church had been in rebellion, not acknowledging any other authority, including John's, who saw Jesus, heard Jesus, saw him crucified, 
visited the empty tomb, and walked with the risen Christ, where Gaius served in humility, offering all he could to fellow laborers of the gospel. Diotrephes did all he could to prop himself out and keep everyone else out. The third, slanderous speech. Diotrephes spoke wicked nonsense against John and his missionaries. The Greek here literally is bringing false charges against us with evil words. It is no doubt that this self-willed leader, this self-appointed head of the church, did his best to tear down the reputation of those whom he was not prepared to receive. It is, as the Proverbs say, whoever utters slander is a fool. Where Gaius spoke words of encouragement and prayer to the minister, Diotrephes operated in foolish, wicked, evil, slandered of the faithful. But what he says with his mouth only lays the foundation for more bad leadership. John's last condemnation to Diotrephes is that he withheld hospitality. He not only creates disunity by refusing hospitality to the laborers of the gospel, but he prevents others from providing hospitality by kicking them out of the church. He not only partakes in unfaithfulness, he punishes faithfulness in anyone else. It's bad enough not to support ministers. Now you're going to make sure nobody else can support them too? Gaius showed great hospitality to these missionaries, feeding them, giving them money, giving them a place to sleep, praying for them, encouraging them. Diotrephes won't even let them into the church. Family, know, know this. It's not the sum of all four acts that caused John to write. Diotrephes just happens to be operating in all four. Any one of these is worth a condemnation. Any one of these is worth a talking to. And any one of these can be found among us. None of us are exempt from operating quietly or loudly in such a way. Pride, arrogance, slander, inhospitable dispositions. These are all struggles for the Christian, leader or not. Each one of us can fall prey to these kinds of behaviors. We must watch ourselves. We must watch our motives, our decisions, and our tongues and fight to bring praise to the name of Jesus with all of our lives. Let us be of God, as John says in verse 11. Our behavior clearly reflects the state of our relationship with Jesus. Let the source of our actions, the source of our words, the source of our motives be from the one who never partakes in evil. Be from the one whom is light and love. Be from the one who knows all things. Be from the one whose power and glory are unmatched. Be from the one who takes up every square inch of the cosmos. Family, let us be from God. John writes a short recommendation for a brother named Demetrius. Verse 12, he says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. 
He directs hospitality to a specific person. Gaius and the church are to receive Demetrius and show him love and provision because John, and because John gives us a threefold testimony to his character. He says he's received good testimony from everyone. Demetrius is well-liked, well-respected, admired among his brethren. People got nothing bad to say about him. He says he's received testimony from the truth itself. All John means here is that Demetrius walks like Gaius in the truth. These are thorough brothers, the real deal. He takes seriously the call to live in a manner worthy of the gospel he received. And lastly, John adds a personal touch. He says, I recommend him so much, I put my own testimony on the line for him. And you know that my testimony is true. John co-signs for Demetrius, vouches for him to be received by Gaius and the church, to be supported by them, to be encouraged by them, to be uplifted by them, to have his needs met by them. I want to close with two questions and a fourth character assessment. My my, My first question is this. Could we receive the same recommendation as Demetrius. Could you? Are you so intimately connected to Jesus and intimately connected to the family of faith here that someone would write this recommendation for you? Second question is, could we be trusted as a body and as individuals to receive someone in the same way? Could we not only just trust the institution of the church who has a benevolence budget and you know we all pitch in to meet a need? That's not what the text is saying. John told Gaius, you take Demetrius. You take him. Remember, this is a personal letter. This wasn't addressed to the church. Family, is it the same for us? Is it the same for you? We've been given much to consider and address within our own selves using the reputation of these three men. But there is, in this letter, a fourth reputation of character. A character so good That it is the very foundation upon which John, Gaius, and Demetrius have built theirs on. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? Did you notice it? When you read this letter, did you find him? I'll tell you who he is. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And his character is what happens when majesty meets humility. When justice meets mercy. When love meets grace, he's Adam without the fall. He's Noah without the drink. He's Abraham without the doubt. He's Jacob without the favoritism. He's Moses without the anger. Can I keep going, y'all? 
No? Okay. Yeah. He's Samson without the rule breaking. He's more faithful than Boaz and a better king than David. He's more of a protector than Jonathan and he's wiser than Solomon. He's more dead than Elijah, but he's also more alive than him too. He's Hezekiah's counselor. He reigned longer than Nebuchadnezzar and chronicled it all for us to see. He's a better priest than Ezra, a better layman than Nehemiah. He's more major than the major prophets and meeker than the minor ones too. And even though he was silent for 400 years, he never stopped working and his cousin declared his coming. His, uh, he is the father inaugurated, the Holy Spirit consummated, crucified, died and alive again, seated at the right hand of the father. And when he comes back, he's coming as a judge and we'll stand before him and we will say, like John, like Gaius, like Demetrius, his character counts for me because he was commended by the father. There's no condemnation in me. So I recommend him to you. Stand with me in worship.